the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Marcus Hellyer, Defence and Strategic Policy Analyst, about his views on China's military build-up, its push into the South China Sea, and the Taiwan situation, plus its potential for war. Marcus, welcome back to the show. Well, it's great to be here. Excellent. And once again, for this episode, I'm joined by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing? Good, Grant. Good to be back. Excellent. Well, let's uh, crack on straight away. The first question that uh, we're just dying to ask, we have quite a few here. China has been rapidly building up its military forces on land, sea and air. Marcus, how long do you think they can keep this up given recent reports of low birth rate, property developer issues, the lack of construction and it's not pumping up their economy anymore, all that kind of stuff? Well, I guess this is just a variation on uh, another question that, sort of gets raised a lot, which is the, have we seen peak China? You know, and so people have said, well, actually, we may have reached the point where China is getting old before it got rich. You know, it's fallen into that middle income trap. And like many uh, debates around China's power and the intent of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, there are strongly polarised views. And so there are those who say, well, the last thing China wants is a big war because that will destroy the international economy. If you fight a war with your largest customer, the US, you know, the global economy is just going to tank. And that's the last thing that uh, Xi Jinping wants. Uh, At the other end of the, the spectrum are the people who say, well, you know, countries can invest lots and lots of money in defence, in military spending, and still function. So there are many countries in the world that have spent, you know, six, seven, eight, or more percent of GDP on military capability and got along just fine. And when we look at China, though, it's always a bit hard to say what exact percent of GDP China is spending on the military because there is a lot of overlap between um, their military forces and their so-called paramilitary forces, so the Coast Guard and various militias and various um, police forces. But they are certainly well short of that, you know, six, seven, or eight percent. They're probably much more around the sort of two percent, if that. So China could actually spend a lot more on the military if it had to. So my sense is is they can keep this up for quite a long time. If if that's where Xi Jinping wants to go, they can invest a lot more in the military. Marcus, there's a counterpoint to that, which is that um, China has to spend vast amounts of money on its internal security apparatus, far more obviously than democracies like the US, which kind of hamstrings its ability to project power abroad because it's so focused then on projecting power internally. What do you, where do you sit on that? Well, I agree. And in that they, China, the CCP invests a lot of money on security at home. And people have argued that, you know, China is sort of uh, a great example of a security state 
and and it's got levels of surveillance of its uh, population that far exceed you know authoritarian regimes of the past. But again, I would say if it's really important for Xi Jinping to spend more money on military capability, he can continue to do that. Yes, I know there are counter arguments. There are the people who say yes, but uh, you know China has been a a one-child state for so long, so every Chinese family has only got one kid, you know, so they don't want to fight wars because you'll have millions and millions of families who are saying, don't take my my son, don't kill my, my one child. Again, in an authoritarian state, I don't think those kinds of um, positions carry a lot of weight with Xi Jinping. I think ultimately it comes down to what is Xi Jinping's intent. You know, does he want to retake... Um, Taiwan by force. What's his risk calculus? How much is he, is he willing to put at stake to do that? You know, those are the the kinds of questions we need to be looking at, rather than can he afford to spend more money on def- on military capability? Has he got enough people? Because the answer to the, both of those questions is is yes. Two years ago, Xi Jinping was calling for peaceful reunification with Taiwan. But that seems like a very long time ago now. We've, you know, China. He's actually said he will use force if necessary to reunify. Do you see that happening? Oh, I think it's definitely a possibility. I mean, it's always smart to take people at their word, noting that you know the, the CCP does have a very long record of saying one thing and doing the complete opposite in the South China Sea. So they said they weren't going to reclaim islands, they weren't going to put military facilities on them, they weren't going to base military assets on those facilities in the South China Sea, yet they've done all of those things. Um, So maybe I'm wrong when I say we should take Xi Jinping at his word, but he has made his intent quite clear, which is Taiwan will be reunified, and if it uh, takes military force to do that, then, you know, it's, that's going to happen. And to heck with the global economy, huh? Well, I think that is the, the risk calculus, you know. So we hear a lot of American analysts and military people saying any day, uh, any morning that Xi Jinping gets up and looks in the mirror and says, today is not the day that I'm going to take a risk and invade Taiwan, that's a good day. And we can't really get inside Xi Jinping's head to sort of know what would flip the switch from looking at that mirror and saying, I don't want to take that risk to looking in the mirror and saying, well, I I think we can get away with it this time. You know, it may be that those factors that you sort of mentioned earlier on, ageing population, sort of the economic factors in, in China of increasing debt, a lot of countries pushing back on the Belt and Road, you know. So maybe there that idea that there is a, a shrinking window of opportunity. Other people have argued that, you know, the US is uh, acquiring the kinds of capabilities that could deny uh, the PLA the ability to s- successfully cross the strait. So maybe you go now, you know, when there's, you know, stocks of long-range anti-ship missiles and killer drones in the US arsenal are still low. You know, there are a lot of factors here to consider. But I, I do think that that um, issue that you mentioned earlier, that it would destroy the global economy, you know, and 
You know, one of the ways that the CCP has been able to justify its position in China, its, its position as the only source of political authority, is that it has, you know, managed the growth of the Chinese economy. You know, hundreds of millions of people raised out of poverty. It's become the world's factory, you know, and a driver of global growth. If uh, there was a war with the US, you know, that would come to a, a shuddering halt and go backwards uh, and casting many of those, you know, newly middle class people out of, uh, you know, their newfound wealth. So uh, I, at the moment, I think Xi Jinping has to be thinking if, if we're going to do it by force, it has to be quick. And I don't think at the moment they have the ability to do it quickly. So the, while there are limitations on the, what the US can do to assist Taiwan due to the you know, PLA's much vaunted anti-access area denial capabilities that put the US carriers at risk and all of that, you know, between Taiwan itself and the US, I think they can sink an awful lot of uh, Chinese ships as they cross the Taiwan Strait. So it would be definitely a protracted struggle you know, I don't think Taiwan would sort of fall like a house of cards um, and a protracted struggle will lead to prolonged economic crisis at a global level. What do you make of a sort of historical parallel with Russia? So, you know, with Russia, we've seen a previously powerful state in the Soviet Union disintegrate. We've seen Russia then ruled by Putin for 20 years, which is kind of what Xi Jinping looks to be on track to do in China. And over that time, become progressively more dangerous to the point where he obviously invaded Ukraine, expecting a quick victory, and that Ukraine would fall and he didn't find that um, and has made a massive miscalculation. Is, is that a comparable trajectory to China or is China so embedded in the global economy in a way that Russia isn't that the calculus is completely different? Well, I again, I am not a... An economist, certainly not uh, an expert on China, but all of the issues we spoke about of ageing population and we didn't even, haven't mentioned the, the environmental challenges in China of, you know, groundwater and things like that. You know, I don't see them suddenly uh, bringing about a collapse of the Chinese economy. You know, I think, you know, the general consensus is, is that the kinds of astronomical growth rates we've seen in the Chinese economy over the past several decades. They will slow to sort of more sort of what we regard as normal levels, but China's not going to collapse. Uh, one thing that could bring about some kind of collapse of the CCP, however, is a failed war over Taiwan. So that's another one of those uh, risks that Xi Jinping will be, you know, part of his calculus when he looks at himself in the mirror in the morning. So, you know, regimes that start wars and don't end them successfully tend not to be very long lived. That's one of the things we see across history. And, you, you know, you raised Russia and, you know, one of the factors that brought about the end of Tsarist Russia is first of all, losing the war to Japan in 1904 and then losing uh, World War One you know, that, that destroyed the credibility of the Tsarist regime. So regimes that, particularly ones that, you know, have a very sort of macho kind of hard edge to them, when you lose wars, you sort of lose your credibility very quickly. 
So certainly a prolonged war um, over Taiwan could be one of the things that brings about change in Taiwan. Though, again, you know, a counter-argument, Putin launched a disastrous war in Ukraine and he he's still hanging on, still hanging on there, partly, I think, because the authoritarian regimes, you know, essentially create this mythology that, you know, there's nobody else can do the job, you know, and, and we tend to buy into that as well. I mean, when we look at Putin and Russia, we sort of go, oh, my goodness, you know, who, what, who could run Russia after Putin? And that sort of creates this sort of, gosh, you know, anything that came after him could be even worse. And, and we actually saw that with, with the Soviet Union. Um, you know, we moved on from the Soviet Union and we didn't get, you know, there was not a flowering of, you know, a thousand flowers of democracy, you know, didn't really take root there, if I can mix my botanical metaphors. And so there is always that worry that if the CCP collapsed, what comes after in China could be even worse. And I do think that whatever comes after Xi Jinping, um, whether it's, you know, a, a CCP leader or something completely different down the track, you know, I think they will, that leader will still be looking in the mirror every morning saying, is this the day that we take Taiwan? You know, that is so hardwired now into not just the CCP, you know, um, philosophy, but into, you know, Chinese, the Chinese nationalist mindset now. So it's um, this, the kind of strategy, I think, that, you know, the US and its partners have at the moment of, of simply making it too hard for China to invade Taiwan, uh, that is just going to keep going for a very, very long time. You're not suddenly going to convince China that Taiwan is not part of China. You know, so so this kind of, you know, we, we see now that um, the US and its partners are, you know, talking about deterrence. You know, we've, we've got various forms of deterrence going, being um, talked about. And interestingly, uh, an adoption of the kind of denial strategy that served the CCP and the PLA so well. So when... The CCP realised that it um, was outmatched by the US militarily. It, it didn't try to challenge the US directly. It adopted what it calls the A2AD strategy, so the anti-access area denial strategy, which is essentially is a denial strategy. It's saying, well, we, we can't beat you on a level playing field, but we're going to make it too hard for you to come into our backyard. Interestingly, the US and its allies seem to be adopting that kind of strategy itself. It's saying, well, it's too hard to beat China, but we're going to make it too hard, too costly and too risky for uh, the PLA to invade Taiwan. And I think that's an approach that we're going to have to keep pursuing for a, a very long time. The good thing is, is that's actually more achievable and more affordable than a kind of strategy of trying to defeat your opponent outright. So we sort of get into this kind of almost um, this stalemate where it's too hard for either side to defeat the other side, but you make it too expensive for the other side to actually start anything.
It's almost a, a new detente, a new, uh, not Cold War, certainly warm war, uh, but it's it's like keeping that balance. But you, you mentioned China's backyard. Well, they've been making their backyard a whole lot bigger by pushing into the South China Seas, as you mentioned before. No, no, we're not going to develop these islands. Well, hey, look, here's a forward base. Uh, how do you see this developing going forward? Do you think they've expanded sufficiently for now? Or are they going to try and claim additional islands, further develop what they've got, that kind of thing? I don't know if they will claim further islands. I mean, they've done, you know, they, they have, you know, delivered so much concrete into the South China Sea. I mean, you know, the, their immediate gains are there, you know. And when we're talking you know, about these kind of grey zone operations, you know, facts on the ground really matter. You know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And we've seen that with China. So they were ruling against them by the International Court of Justice, which, you know, rejected their claims to these features. Uh, you know, China basically ignored that. I think what they're doing at the moment is that, you know, there's offence and defence. So they've been very successful in offence of, of claiming these features and redeveloping them. What they're doing at the moment is to is sort of pushing back on other states' claims. So we're, we're seeing that at the moment in the argy-bargy with the Philippines, um, trying to stop the Philippines uh, assert its claims and to resupply the poor Marines stuck out on the shipwreck in the South China Sea. So they're, it's, they're, they're doing both things. But I think um, what we also need to be aware of is there's probably a lot going on um, in domains that we can't see, so particularly the undersea domain. So I suspect the uh, the Chinese are doing a lot to essentially fortify themselves in the underwater domain. So laying um, undersea uh, acoustic um, ranges so they can detect uh, US and its partners' submarines, for example. So, you know, it's not just about the islands themselves. There's things going on under the water and then no doubt there are things going up in space where they're increasing the number of assets they have that can conduct surveillance over the South China Sea. So I think they are probably fortifying themselves across all of the domains. Do they need to actually physically build more islands and lay more concrete? I'm not sure. But one of the things I do think that is of some concern to Australia, and, you know, I'm not saying China's about to invade Australia, but some of those bases in the South China Sea do now put long-range Chinese strike assets within range of Australia. So whether those are uh, ballistic missiles or long-range bombers armed with cruise missiles, that if they did use those uh, islands either as as launch points for missiles or refueling points for for aircraft it actually gets them a lot closer to australia well marcus that brings me nicely to the million dollar question which is will the dsr adequately prepare australia for that kind of contingency well again it gets down to the the question of what contingency are we preparing for so um We've sort of seen over the last sort of 15 years a kind of ramping up of the expect the government's expectations of our defence capability. So if we go back to the 2009 white paper, 
has been this progressive ramping up of the government's expectations of what defence can do in a self-reliant kind of way. So the 2009 White Paper essentially said that a war between Australia and China was a, such a remote possibility that it was, it was a separate white paper. You know, it was a different white paper. We'd be in a different world. And no government has really said that it's planning for that kind of contingency, but documents since then, such as the 2020 Defence Strategic Update and the DSR, have pretty much said we need the ability to be able to deter a great power adversary by ourselves. Now, and I think what they're really saying there is it's that old Defence of Australia line, which is we need to be able to, to control our air and sea approaches. Now, where exactly they are, we can debate and how far out we can debate, but we've always had this view we need to be able to control the, the approaches to Northern Australia. Now, back in Paul Dibb's day when he, in the 1980s, he wrote the Defence of Australia white paper and, you know, we had this Defence of Australia doctrine, that was a little easier because, you know, you back in the 1980s, there was really nobody with the intent or capability to actually do that. Now we at least have somebody who has is getting the capability to threaten Northern Australia. And we can argue at length about do they have the intent, will they ever have the intent, but military planning tends to be based on capability rather than intent because intent can change. So what we see in the DSR is this view that we do need the ability to deter a great power, but does that mean we need the ability to actually operate in the South China Sea? So. It doesn't really answer that question of if there is a conflict between China and the US, whether in the, over Taiwan or the South China Sea, what would Australia's role be in that? And, you know, do we, do we show up at all? Well, Australian governments have always been very hesitant to say that we definitely would show up. Uh, Peter Dutton, when he was Defence Minister in the previous government, went about as far as any Australian politician has ever gone to essentially say, well, of course we would show up. You know, that's what the alliance is is all about. And I think it is, um, you know, Australian governments, whether Liberal or Labor, I think their, their position is we would show up if there was a, a war between the US and China. Um, and I think the expectation there or the understanding is it would be a war started by by China. So the qu then question is, well, what would we send? What would our role be? And to, this is a very long-winded way of answering your question. <laughs> so are we prepared? Well, we can always send something. You know, generally the, the Australian AD, the ADF's force structure has always been regardless of, you know, the, the high-level documentation you know, and, and the esoteric arguments, it's basically been a force built around defending Australia with the understanding that something in that force you can send overseas to offshore contingency. So, yes, we could, you know, send a couple of Collins-class submarines. On May, hopefully on a good day you can get two up there. Um, you know, you could send a squadron of F-35s, you could send some wedge shells. So there are things we could send up there, but 
it wouldn't be a lot. Um, you know, trying to get F-35s to uh, play a meaningful role in a Taiwan contingency is pretty hard because the good guys don't have a lot of near bases up there. So you'd be competing for space with the US squadrons in Guam or Japan and Okinawa. So um, there's not really a lot of good options. Uh, so probably what we would be doing is a, first of all, uh, focusing on defending uh, US force projection infrastructure here in Australia. So um ensuring Australia was a safe operating base for the US and potentially, you know, having some responsibility for the southern front, you know, so making sure that Chinese submarines couldn't slip into the Indian Ocean or the South Pacific to kind of, um, you know, what they, what the, the political scientists refer to as, you know, horizontal escalation. I, you know, trying to stretch the area of operations to, you know, thin out US resources. So you, you can imagine quite a few roles that Australia could play there. Um, but there are a lot of, a number of things that we, we couldn't do that are probably worth thinking about. So as I mentioned earlier, Australia is now within range of, uh, Chinese long-range strike assets. So now those long-range strike assets, even for a very uh, powerful military like the PLA, are always going to be in relatively short supply. So China is not going to have infinite numbers of missiles and, you know, their targeteers will be going down the list of what are the things we really want to take out. But... If, uh, you know, we, we know the Chinese are very good at information warfare, which is about strategic messaging, and one form of strategic messaging might be to launch a couple of missiles uh, into an Australian city to say, okay, you, you picked your side. We'll just explain to you what that means, okay? You are now a legitimate target, and, oh, we just took out, you know, a hospital or a port or something just to show you the cost of being involved there. And at the moment, we have virtually nothing in the way of you know, missile defence. We have three air war warfare destroyers, which have a limited kind of capability, um, but really not very much there. So um, while we would be sort of trying to ensure a safe operating base for the US, we'd probably be relying on the US to provide um, missile defence for us at the moment. So, you know, I know the government doesn't really want to scare the horses, but it's probably, I think, we should be having a kind of conversation about uh, these sorts of things because, you know, I don't think it's good that the first time the Australian public thinks about, you know, the, the kinetic uh, outcome of a conflict with China is a bunch of missiles landing in Darwin. Uh, but I think once you start that conversation, I think the Australian public's um, enthusiasm, which is sort of fairly borderline at best, their enthusiasm for getting involved in in wars in the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea, you know, that could evaporate quite quickly. So, Speaking of difficult conversations, sort of a two-barreled question here. 
Politicians here are assuring us otherwise, but will taking the US nuclear gold, so to speak, lock us into any future conflicts the US is involved in, including Taiwan, not just necessarily Taiwan, but also does that enti- that whole calculus change if someone like Trump gets back in? Well, these are good questions, you know, and again, uh, like all of the questions in the, in this topic, there are strongly held views on both sides of the spectrum. I guess what I would say is, yes, getting SSNs doesn't legally require us to get to support the US in a a conflict with China. However, we were probably going to support the US anyway. You know, it is, you know, sort of pretty much baked into the, the worldviews of both the Liberal and Labor parties that we will support the alliance. So SSNs or not, we're probably going to get involved. Now, I think the new bit about SSNs is that uh, they are one of the few assets that's kind of survivable in a conflict with the PLA. And so they are going to be very uh, sought after by the US. Now, you know, one of the things that we have provided traditionally are those kind of high value, small number assets that even the US doesn't have a lot of, such as Wedgetail AWAC aircraft or air-to-air refuelers. And so, you know, we sent them to the Middle East in the conflict with ISIS and they performed very well. So the the US in a conflict with China, they're probably not looking for infantry battalions. You know, they will be looking for SSNs. And when they go down the list of people with SSNs, well, it's a pretty short list, you know. And so I think there will be an expectation that they are provided. Now, if we say no, well, is the alliance over? Well, um, it would be very difficult, I think, for an Australian politician to say we, we ain't sending the SSNs. On the other hand, if the US loses, I mean, you could say that the alliance is effectively over or, you know, the, the US's allies in uh, the Western Pacific will be going, uh, we kind of backed the wrong horse there. We may need to uh, recalibrate. So I think, you know, most Australian senior Australian policy makers will be going, this is a, a conflict that we want the US to win or at least, you know, fight the, the PLA to a standstill, uh, you know, so we can move on to, you know, a, a some kind of post-war uh, situation we can live with. So, again, it's it's not a simple, you, you've accepted the gold, so now you, you have to show up. But I think we would be showing up anyway, but now you've got the SSNs, you know, there will be an expectation that 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 they uh, are sent. You know, I mean, one thing to sort of realise is assuming, you know, they, they we get the eight where we're talking about and that's a very, very long time away, uh, you know, we will have, you know, sort of, you know, 15% of the, you know, the allied fleet, you know, and so if if you got that bigger part of the global fleet and you, you don't go, there'll be sort of serious questions about 
Yeah, hang on. Um, why did we provide you th with this capability? So it's not a simple, straightforward, yes, no kind of issue, but I, I just think if you've got that capability, you're going to use it, and if you don't, then it raises very serious questions of what is the alliance about. Marcus, thank you so much for coming and chatting with you and I. This has been a great uh, discussion on uh, the very delicate situation that we're in to our north. Well, thanks. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, th these are big questions. And like I said, there are very, very strongly held views on, on both ends of the spectrum held by, you know, intelligent, reasonable people, you know. And um, one thing I've sort of noticed in Australia is the debate has is getting nastier. It's getting nastier and nastier. And I don't think that's very helpful at all, you know. Um, you know, there are... People on both sides of the spectrum are, you know, people who love their country and want good outcomes for their country and also want peace to prevail in um, in the region. You know, I don't think anybody out there is wants a war, you know. So uh, certainly in Australia and in the US, you know, I don't see that either. So, you know, I think we need to have calm, reason and reasonable debate debate and reasonable people can disagree. Unfortunately, these are very Im important issues. And so, you know, if you disagree with people, it means you head off in very, very different uh, policy uh, settings. So it's, it's probably not one where there's sort of a, this kind of nice, comfy, squishy middle ground where we can all come together and, and hug each other, unfortunately. That's very polarizing. But Marcus, thanks for coming on the show. And Ewan, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.